Well, before we get into our uh, text today, I want to uh, take a moment and talk to you about baptism. Okay, baptism. Now, that is always a relevant thing to talk about because the church is called to make disciples of Jesus and to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we desire to be a New Testament church, and this is uh, a part of what it means to be, to, uh, to be a church. You know, one of the things about baptism is that unlike a lot of other things in any church where you've got, you know, preference or culture or tradition that shapes why a church will do what it, what it does, when it comes to baptism, we baptize because Jesus told us to. And every church ever since uh, the apostles has has baptized, and we are commanded to baptize. Uh, in addition to that, Christians are commanded to be baptized. And so a biblical church will be baptizing, and a biblical Christian will be baptized. And those two come together, and they are uh, vitally important uh, to realize that uh, the early church immediately began baptizing on the day of Pentecost. And perhaps you've never thought of this, but Peter preaches the very first sermon after the Holy Spirit comes, and 3,000 people were baptized, probably including Peter himself. Perhaps that baptism service was John baptizing Peter, Peter baptizing John. You know, uh, James, you come over here, we'll baptize you, and the disciples get baptized, and, and then uh, everybody else got baptized. And the church for 2,000 years has been baptizing people. And this is part of, really, the joy of a of a biblical church. And so Jesus commands it, the early church practiced it. A biblical church, therefore, will urge it. And I am urging you to be baptized as a follower of Jesus Christ. And if you are a follower of Jesus by faith, but have not yet been baptized, uh, I'm, I'm urging you to do that. Uh, truly, a unbaptized Christian is a disobedient Christian, because baptism is the very first step of, of following Jesus. And so for those reasons, I'm, I'm urging you with biblical uh, authority and in the words of Jesus, and I would be failing as a pastor if I didn't urge you to be baptized. And so I'm urging you to be baptized and providing here now a very uh, special opportunity to be baptized. I mentioned earlier in the service that August 15th, uh, that Sunday night, we're going to have a baptism service at Lake Michigan, um, which has been for our church a very special thing that we've done for many years. What a great place to be baptized. You know, we have just a few miles down the road, one of the largest baptismals in the world, Lake Michigan. And uh, there's plenty of water there for us to get you under and bring you back out. And we promise to remember to do so. Okay? So... I would urge you to uh, consider being baptized. Go to the table, if you're here in the room, go to the table after the service. Uh, you can go to Bethelweb.org forward slash baptism. For those of you that are online, this is just as much for you as everybody here. And let's have a great baptism service August 15th, amen? Okay, super. Now, our summer series is Bottom Lines of the Bible. And today's bottom line draws a very definitive line in the Lake Michigan sand regarding what is required for anyone who would draw near to God, or to say anyone who would have a relationship with God. Our text is Hebrews 11, 
verse 6, Hebrews 11, verse 6. Here is the key phrase, the bottom line we're focusing on today. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now, if we pull back from that singular sentence, we see that we are here in the very famous chapter 11 of Hebrews. This is known as the, the, the chapter of faith, the hall of faith. As the writer of Hebrews, we don't know who it was, spends an entire chapter describing the faith walk of Old Testament saints, most of them famous Old Testament saints. These names would be familiar to you. These are listed in, in Hebrews 11, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, many others, famous ones. But there in uh, the midst of the famous ones are more obscure ones like uh, Barak, Jephthah, and Enoch. I'm going to guess most of you didn't spend a lot of time reading about Enoch this week, right? Uh, an obscure Old Testament figure. We don't really know that much about him. But here is what Hebrews, uh, the broader section says here in Hebrews 11 about Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was command, uh, commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now let's talk about Enoch briefly. He's not the focus of, uh, of this, but it is the context of Hebrews 11 verse 6. This obscure person we find in the early part of Genesis. Uh, we find him in the, the days before Noah when people would live these extraordinarily long lifespans. Uh, it tells us in Genesis that Enoch's dad was Jared, who lived 800 years after Enoch was born. Imagine that. So what did Enoch do over the holidays for 800 years? He went to Jared's. <laughs> I worked hard on that. Now, if Enoch is known for anything, it's not that his dad was really old. It is how his life ended. Here is Genesis 2 or 5, verse 24. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That's all we're told about Enoch. Now, this little bit about Enoch ended up making Enoch famous in early Judaism. In fact, that might be one reason why the writer of Hebrews includes him, is that he is obscure to us, but he was sort of a, a legendary uh, character in early Judaism. And it could be because he represented an Elijah-like character. You remember Elijah was taken up uh, by God in a, in a chariot. And Enoch, in a similar way, had a, a kind of Old Testament rapture experience where God, he didn't die, God just took him to heaven. And what the writer of Hebrews does here is he draws on the pleasure that God must have had with Enoch to, to not have him die, but to take him to heaven. 
and makes this point that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now note with me here that this is one of these double negative sentences. And if you know a, a, in, in math, a, a negative and a negative, they, they counter each other uh, and they, they make a positive. And in English, similarly, when you have a not, not, it means the positive of that. And so without faith, negative, it is impossible, negative, to please God, which is another way of saying that with faith, it is possible to please God. With faith, it's possible to please God. Now let, just, let that just sit for a moment on your brain and your soul today. Think of this. Almighty God, the God who created the galaxies, the universe, by speaking it into existence. This God who is the infinite God, infinitely powerful, knowledge uh, perfect in all of his uh, qualities and attributes. This, this being, this person, God, for reasons known only to him, allows his internal pleasure to be influenced by mere creatures like you and me. This is an awesome thought. Now that is not to say that uh, the, that God's joy in being God, in his triunity, in his purposes, in his acts, in, in all that he does, that God is ever less than perfectly joyful, okay? Because that would, not be, that would not be true. He is always joyful. He has always been perfectly joyful. He always will be perfectly joyful. What is going on here is the astonishing uh, reality that God would even care for us. Now, we take this for granted, don't we? Oh, yeah, God loves us. God loves me, you know, and I'm sure that he cares about every detail of my life, and he's all about me. He's focused on me. You know, we are so often like children are to parents where we assume, you know, when you're a kid, you assume that you're your parents care about you and that they're going to meet your needs. And when you're a kid, you think the singular purpose for a parent is to do that. It's the only reason they exist is to, is to meet my, my needs. And many people come to God, especially if you maybe grew up in the faith where all you've been told your entire life is that God loves you and cares for you. It's almost like an assumed theological reality in my, in my heart. But let's pause for a moment and be astonished that God would care for us and that God would somehow derive pleasure from people like you and me should blow our minds. Why would he do that? And here is the additional astonishing reality that Hebrews 11 highlights is that the joy that God has in humanity is not a kind of like generic joy where he looks at seven billion people and says, well, today was a little better day than yesterday. I'm a little happier with the seven billion people than I was yesterday. No, Hebrews 11 does not list, you know, Israel generically, but lists people personally. Lists them by name and says 
that God delighted in them. Enoch here in particular, that God had such pleasure in this one singular guy that he did not die. God simply raptured him to heaven. This is a function of God's fatherhood to us in that he loves us individually. My dear brother or sister today, God does not just look down upon Bethel Church. He looks down upon you. And he looks into your heart and your soul. And we have the unbelievable opportunity by the way that we posture ourselves and live our life before God to bring him pleasure. This is an incredible privilege for mere creatures like you and me. Now, does he take pleasure in us all the time, no matter what we do? He just lovey-lovey towards us. There are, there are, I wouldn't call them churches because it's not a biblical church, but there are people who uh, approach this that way. They are known as universalists where, you know, God's love is so complete. It's so, it's so massive that no matter what we do, he delights in us. You just know that God loves you. Live however you want. He loves everyone no matter what. But then you come across a bottom line like this and it says without faith it's impossible to please God. And Enoch had this kind of faith in God, such a faith that God delighted in him to the extent that he did not allow him to die but simply took him to heaven. And this is the question that we have before us today is if we can please God and if there is a faith that pleases God, well then what kind of faith is that? And how can I have that? Because I want to bring pleasure to the Almighty. Now there is an assumption here in Hebrews 11 that I want to make clear as well. And the assumption is that That all of us understand that what Hebrews 11 is describing here is not so much the saving faith that enters into a relationship with God, but the kind of living faith, the sanctifying faith, that in the course of living my Christian life brings pleasure and delight to God. These are known as saving faith and sanctifying faith. They are two sides of the same coin in ways that I want to make sure that everybody understands here. So number one, what kind of faith pleases God? Without justifying faith, it is impossible to please God. Without justifying faith, it is impossible to please God. What do I mean by justifying faith? I mean the kind of faith that Romans largely dealt with. This is Romans 5 verse 1. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. This faith that is described here is trust. I mean, all, all faith kind of is that, as you walked into church today, or some of those of you online, as you, you know, went to your uh, favorite sitting chair, or wherever you are, uh, you had confidence as you sat down, that chair is going to hold you up, right? You trusted that Chair. That's, in a sense, what faith is. It, is. it is a kind of trust. It is a confident hope in an object or in a person. And as we have studied at length in Romans, when we enter into salvation, it is, it is by faith 
that we are saved. It is, it is not my sincerity, it is not just faith generically, but it is the object of that faith that brings salvation. So in a sense, we could say that faith doesn't save us. It is Jesus that saves us. Theologians therefore talk about faith as the instrument by which all the blessings that we have in Jesus are brought to us. So that we look at that and we can say that I was saved by faith. I was justified. I was declared righteous before God by faith. And what the Bible makes clear is, is that this is the only way that we can please God is to be declared righteous by faith. And this is a work of Jesus and God the Father and the Holy Spirit as God the Father purposes salvation sent Jesus to die on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. And now we as sinners, responding to the work of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel, we trust and believe in Jesus, that's faith, and therefore are declared righteous by God the Father as Jesus' righteousness is applied to our moral account. So the Bible, when it talks about this kind of faith, emphasizes the fact that this is uh, a gift. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. And why would God set it up this way? So that nobody can boast about it. Salvation is designed and engineered by God in a way that in the end, there is no glory, there is no like, you know, hey, look, look at what I've done about it. It is all entirely what God has done by Jesus. And so we do not get glory from this. We don't stick our chest out, oh, look at me. No, this is, this is why we say it's all about him. It's not about me. Even it's not about my faith. It is about Jesus Christ. But faith is the means by which the work of Jesus is applied to my moral account before God. And this is where Hebrews 11 verse 6 makes it very clear that without faith it is impossible to please God. Without a faith in Jesus as the first step, it is impossible to please God. Why is that? Because without faith in Jesus, I am not under the love of God or the grace of God. I am under the wrath of God. Without faith in Jesus, all my things I do that make me think that maybe God likes me or God is taking pleasure in me are all for naught. God does not delight in the moral activities of unbelievers. They are as filthy rags, the Old Testament says, to him. So see it here clearly that Without faith, without saving faith, no matter how moral you see yourself to be, it is impossible to please God. So I just want to ask the question, have you trusted in Jesus in that way? Have you put your faith and trust in what he did dying on the cross for your sins? And to urge you today to put your faith and trust in Christ so that you might begin a relationship with God where you are no longer under his anger, now or forever, but you are under his love and under his pleasure. Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. 
Do you have saving faith? And if not, trust in him today. And all the Christians said, Now, the point of Hebrews 11 is not so much the point that Paul was making in Romans about the necessity of, of faith to be justified. It is more focused on what the living of faith looks like, what the application of faith looks like in the troubles and the trials and the difficulties of life, which no doubt many of us here today are in the midst of. So let's look back at Hebrews 11, verse 6, because he clarifies now this bottom line with what he means by the kind of faith that brings pleasure to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Notice, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. So you'll notice there are two qualifications for the the kind of person that brings pleasure to God or the kind of faith that brings pleasure to God, they are, we must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So let's talk about the first one of those. What does it mean to believe that he exists? What I'm saying is, it's when I live in the awareness of the reality of God, the awesome glory and majesty of God. When I live my life aware in a worship relationship, in a deference to the reality of God in my life. Now this may seem obvious, okay? Uh, when it says that, you know, must believe that he exists, we could spend some time talking about arguments for the existence of God, etc. but that's not the point of this message and it's not the point of the text either. We know that God is not pleased by atheists, but I think what Hebrews is making the point is that rather the long list of heroes are heroes of the faith because they lived their daily lives conscious of and in deference to the reality of God in their life. So we look at Moses in Hebrews 11. What did he do? He gave up Egypt and the pleasures of Egypt for God. We can look at Abraham who left his homeland in Ur for God. We can look at Isaac who, who blesses Jacob and Esau and does so for God's sake and so forth. And what we see is each one of these people listed in Hebrews 11 radically bent the direction of their life because of an awareness of the glory of God, that God was an active, real presence in their life, and it changed the way that they lived. And I find this to be a daily tension in my life. And maybe me admitting this as the pastor of the church will free all of us to go, yeah, I think probably that's, there's some truth to that. But isn't this the tension that we feel uh, where it's so easy to live life without the awareness of God, without the kind of awesome, uh, the awesomeness of God somehow changing my thoughts for the day, my directions for the day. It is so easy to just kind of charge into the day. All right, it's a new day. I'm going to live this day. I'm going to do it in my own sufficiency. I'm going to kind of charge into this day. I got this. And for that day to become a week and that week to become a month and that month to become a year. And I mean, it is easy 
to live a very secular life, even as a Christian, even as somebody gathering on Sundays, uh, even as somebody who you know, professes these things, this is the challenge, is to not, not on Sunday, like right now we're all aware of the presence of God, uh, we're in church for goodness sakes, but what happens when we leave and what happens on Monday? Does the faith that we profess on Sunday make any difference in the way that we live on Monday? And so the hall, the hall of faith here in chapter 11 is, is pushing forward people who lived their life radically different because of an awareness and a consciousness of the glory and the power and the worth of God in their life. Do you live with God in the background of your life or the foreground of your life? How much do you think about him in a normal day? I'm not asking for a number, I'm just asking you to think about that. Do you think about God? How long is it you know, into the day before you sort of like, oh yeah, God? These are all things that I think chapter 11 challenges us with and the point of the passage is, is driving us towards. For God not to be in the periphery of our life, but to be at the center of our life. Friends, do you realize God doesn't like to be ignored? None of us do, do we? Okay. You might say, I'm not ignoring God. I came to church today. I'm watching online today. I'm not ignoring God. God must be pleased with me. But I'm asking about the daily life, the regular course of our lives. Are we aware of God? Do we think about God? And this is where it's, I think it is strangely easy to sort of move him you know, to the outskirts of our mind and our heart, only to be reminded on Sunday how important he is, to move him out again on, on Monday. And this is not a life that pleases the Lord. He does not like to be ignored. Can I draw an analogy? How well does your marriage go if you ignore your spouse? Not well. Wouldn't recommend it. Why? Because spouses need to know that to the other spouse, I matter to you. I'm important to you. I'm most important to you. And all relationships are like that, right? I mean, if you are an adult uh, here and, and you have parents that live you know, somewhere, and what, what do they often say? You never call us. We need to know that we matter to you. Come see us. This is human relationships, and this is what God is like as well. What pleases him? Here's what pleases God. When we live our life where he matters the most to us, he, he, it brings pleasure to God. And in this, God is not that clingy friend who's always like, I need more. No, this is the God of the universe. It's not that he needs us, friends, we need him. We need him. Who's blessed by an ongoing relationship with God? God takes pleasure in it, but we need it way more than he does, don't you think? And that is why God says, listen, I take pleasure in you when, I, when you when I know that I matter most to you, but that is the life that also is the greatest pleasure to us. 
And as a side note, this is where like, you know, reading your Bible regularly, maybe daily, this is where praying, church involvement and attendance, Christian relationships and community, these are all things that serve to keep God in the foreground of our life, to keep him from slowly moving in to the background of our life, a powerful reminder of God's presence. And so that's the, that's the first thing about a faith that pleases God is that we believe that he exists, that we live our days aware of him and ready to radically bend our life to him and for him. Now here's the second focus. Look at verse six again. And without faith it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. Notice, and that he rewards those who seek him. Now here's the second thing, is that God takes pleasure in us when we come to him with an expectation of his generosity, that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. And again, this is a function of faith, faith that pleases God, apprehends the promises of God, hears them, sees them, reads them in the Bible. Things like, never leaving us, never forsaking us, the promise of future resurrection, eternal life, and reward for serving him. All of these promises are in the past. Here's what faith does. Faith reaches into the past regarding the promises of God. It applies it to the future of my life, believing it's gonna be true, and appropriates it in my present day. And notice it says we must believe he will reward those who seek him. Did you know God is a rewarder? He doesn't pay wages, okay? Wages are uh, generally tied to, although we would all debate it, uh, our worth to the organization that we, that we work for. Like our, our work and our labor is compensated somewhat equally for the value that we bring to whatever company we work for. But God doesn't pay wages, he, he pays bonuses. He's a, he's a rewarder, he is a lavish, generous giver Way more than whatever our wages would be, he rewards us big time. And I think many Christians do not think about this. God incentivizes us to seek him. I have not thought about this thoroughly, so forgive me if this is not accurate, but I remember in my, in my church growing up, there was the candy man. Did your church growing up have the candy man? That old guy that loved to talk to kids? Maybe it's creepy, I don't know, but would always go to church and he'd have a little candy in his pocket. So guess who the kids would seek? The candy man. Hey, here you go. He would reward those who seek him. I don't know if that's a good analogy. I didn't write it down. Probably not, but you get the point that I'm trying to make here. One reason so many people, their, their Christian lives feel flat and feel unmotivated is that we have uh, either neglected or didn't know or forgotten that God promises to reward us for seeking him. Now listen, here's some verses about this. Isaiah 40 verse 10, behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Revelation 2, he was near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. You want to know what that is? 
I don't know either. We'll find out someday. The hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone and no one knows except the one who receives it. John 12, Jesus. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. 2 John 8, watch yourselves so that, no may, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. 1 Corinthians 9, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. These and so many other verses talk about rewards that God promises to those who earnestly seek him. And when we understand that there is blessing to us and reward in this life and in the next that God promises, it is intended by God to motivate us to earnestly seek him. To believe that when we, as we have him, as we grow in our relationship with him and forever, that God is going to bless us far more than not seeking him. He's the candy man. Now, this last verse I, I found appropriate, uh, you know, talking about the Corinthian games, which were, you know, very similar to the, the uh, Olympic games. And here we are in this week of uh, the Olympics kicking off, and uh, I grew up watching the Olympics, and, you know, we pretty much have the Olympics on for the next two weeks. Watching that, it's super, I think, uh, fun. I love sports and, and, uh, and all the rest. But one of the things about the Olympics that we would have to note is that they are really good at giving rewards. I mean, they've been doing it since ancient Greek times. So uh, they, they, they give reward. And so you have these athletes who are earnestly seeking that reward. And what do they do? Incredible self-discipline and incredible self-sacrifice. I mean, some of these athletes have spent their entire lives focused on doing one thing good enough in order to get the reward from the Olympic Committee. And then they get COVID and they can't go. <laughs> Sad. But one thing you never see on the medal stand at an Olympics, you'll never see an athlete that acts surprised when they give him the gold medal. Like, wow, I, I didn't realize that we got anything for this. I had no idea. I get a medal too? Why do they never do that? Because the whole time, they have been seeking the reward. And what God does for us is he places before us rewards to incentivize our service and our sacrifice for him. And he urges strong confidence that he will, better than the Olympic Committee, faithfully reward us for earnestly seeking him. Now, of course, God is the ultimate reward. He is the gold medal. But there are many other rewards that the Bible talks about that God promises to those who seek him. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Somebody here in a trouble today? Somebody here in an affliction today? You ask the question, why? Why am I going through this? Why am I having to endure this? Why do I gotta be faithful 
in this, these light and momentary troubles. What are they achieving for us? Bitterness, anger at God. No. They're achieving for us glory from God that will far outweigh whatever sacrifice faithfulness required. And this is laced throughout Scripture. Friends, can I urge you, do not miss the reward. See God as the gold medal, but do not miss the rewards that God promises for those who earnestly seek him. I think about the parable of the talents. Do you remember the master who reprimands the one servant who had one talent, and what did he do with that talent? Nothing! Nothing. The first had ten. God is generous. Master gives him ten more. Next had five. Master's generous. Gives him five more. So now he's got ten. First guy's got twenty. The guy who had one talent does nothing. What did he do? He underestimated the generosity of the master. He thought he was, you know, uh, what's the opposite of generous? The word's not coming to me. Stingy, okay? He thought the master was Dutch. (laughs) It's only Dutch people allowed to laugh at that. If only he had realized how generous the master was. And the point of that parable is that we, we, God has given us the, the talents, the guineas in a different parable. We bring pleasure to God as we see him as super generous and as we go for it in our lives and in our spiritual lives, as we earnestly seek the things of God and and the kingdom of God as we talked about last week, and we believe in our hearts that we're not gonna get to the end of this and have nothing because God is way too generous. It is the generosity of God and the the magnanimity of God that, that the Christian holds in his heart. I mean, he gave us Jesus. If that's the down payment, what else is he gonna give us? And we go for it for God, and we earnestly seek him and serve him and bend our lives conscious of his presence in our life. And as God sees us going for it, believing him to be super generous, he takes pleasure in us. He delights in us. And that may not sound spiritual to you, but can I give you the, uh, the ultimate example In just a few verses in Hebrews, this is what it says. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Okay, so who's the last hall of faith example? It is Jesus himself. What did Jesus do? The founder and perfecter of our faith, who, notice, for the joy set before him, endured the cross despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. You ever think about this? Why did Jesus incarnate? Why did Jesus suffer? Why did Jesus have that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane and, and, uh, and not just call down 10,000 angels, as the song says? 
to, uh, to destroy the world and to set him free. He could have done that in a moment. He's the son of God. Every blow, every nail, all the things. Why did he go through all of that? And the, the reasons are complex. To defeat Satan and conquer death and fulfill the will of the Father and, Father and obey the Father. But what Hebrews 12 highlights is that as Jesus was doing these things and enduring these things and obeying the Father in difficulty, part of why he was doing it is that his heart was set on the joy of what comes after he did it. To be exalted, to ascend to the right hand of God the Father, to anticipate the day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To think about the new heaven and the new earth and the gathered, redeemed humanity. To have the picture of standing there, Revelation 5, at the center with the, the, the mass of humanity around him, all singing praise. He is worthy, worthy is the Lamb. He thought about all those future things and he was confident that God was going to do that and he let that future joy motivate him in the difficulties of, the t of today. And God the Father looks down upon the Son at his baptism and his transfiguration, and what does he say? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And you and I have the incredible, unbelievable, privilege of bringing pleasure to Almighty God as we earnestly seek him. This summer, the DeWitt family has spent a great deal of time swimming. We do not have a pool, but even better, we have friends with pools. So when you have an eight-year-old and a six-year-old daughter and you go to the pool, this is pretty much uh, the routine. It's now very familiar. The girls jump in. They get wet. They splash. They practice their swimming. They splash. They get out. They jump in. Within a minute or so, this is what Jennifer and I start hearing. Hey, Mom and Dad, watch this. And we look and they're like pirouetting in the water. Dad, Dad, watch this. And there's Kirley trying to swim across the pool under the water. Hey, Dad, look at me. When they complete some gold medal performance in the pool. And what are they looking for? They're looking for a word from me. They're looking for a smile from me. They want to know my presence, my pleasure, and my love. And why do they want that? Because they love us, and they know that we love them. And so I urge you this week, bottom line, live this week like your divine daddy and his pleasure matters the most to you. And when you do, please know, God is pleased. Amen.